How do you maintain focus when you encounter challenges, obstacles, and other problems designed to knock you off balance as you pursue your purpose in life? We'll examine this in this series, Focus, the Guardian of Purpose. Let's jump in. We are continuing our discussion of focus. We've done several messages on focus, the guardian of purpose, and we began last time in discussing focus on the purpose of this ministry, the ministry here at Crenshaw Christian Center, and we're going to continue that this morning. So the first few pages will be review, but I wanted you to have this in your hands because some of these things you may not have seen. I don't, some of you may not have ever seen Apostles' vision for the ministry. You have it right there in your hands now. So we're going to read it. Uh, so let me start by saying that we're going to distinguish between the pastor's vision and the church's mission statement and the purpose of the ministry. They all flow together. So let's look and see what Apostle wrote a number of years ago. And you see that in the third paragraph on page one. Many years ago, the Lord gave me a vision of a church of born-again, spirit-filled believers that would be governed solely by the principles and doctrines recorded in God's Word. This church would, in its teachings and in its growth, operate within biblical principles, instructing all the people in the Word so that they would learn how to rise from burnout hopes and faulty lifestyles using clearly defined and enlightened precepts of faith accept and enjoy the privileges and promises God has for us through Jesus Christ. Apostle wrote that many years ago. That was a mission for Crenshaw Christian Center. It was the mission for Crenshaw Christian Center here in, I mean the vision for Crenshaw Christian Center here in New York. Now the mission statement is straightforward as I state here and it's simply stated. It's to live Christ, love people, teach people. Live Christ, that's to live a Christ-like life and to love people and to teach people. And that's what we do in this ministry. Now, in carrying out the pastor's vision and church mission, uh, we are uniquely positioned to carry out the purpose of the ministry, which I state as following. The purpose is to seek and save the lost by teaching the uncompromising word of God and proclaiming to the lost the good news, which is the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. To seek and save the lost by teaching the uncompromising word of God and proclaiming to the lost the good news, which is the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. Now, in carrying out this purpose, we are workers together with Jesus, who declared in Luke 19.10, and you don't have to go anywhere today because it's right in front of you. Luke 19.10. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is our mission and frankly should be the mission or purpose, I should say, of every church in the body of Christ. Now, there are two questions we should answer. We should ask and answer. The first one is, are we carrying out this purpose of the ministry? That's number one. And number two, how do we carry out the purpose? How do we put it into practice and action. Now my answer to question one is easy. Look around you. I'm looking around. How many new people are here for the first time today? When is the last time you invited someone to church or to Bible study? When is the last or the first time you led someone to Christ? 
is the church growing? I've heard it said by members here, and you, some of you have had the, heard the same thing, that growing the church is the job of the pastor. And we don't have a pastor right now. Others have said, well, we don't really have a church home. We meet in a hotel. In other words, we don't have a church building of our own right now. And we need to have our own church building. I've heard both of those during the past year, and some of you have heard them because some of you have uttered <laughs> these statements and so forth. Now, let me say this. We may eventually have a new pastor and eventually have a new church home, but you need to know this, that neither of these two conditions are absolutely necessary to carry out the church purpose, which is to seek and save the lost. We've gotten used to the, and I want to stress this because we, this, is, this, is, this is true in, in the body of Christ. We've gotten used to the one man in charge of everything church where the pastor is there and he's in charge of everything and everything emanates from him and so forth and so on. Uh, and we think that that's the way the church has to be today. But in terms of basing a church on scripture, it's interesting to note, and you can check it out for yourself, look in the book of Acts, where the early church's growth and development began, and you don't find the word pastor used once. You'll find it used later, but you don't find it there in the formative stages of the church. The early church that did have strong leaders and elders, but it was never a one-man band like we see today. There was plural leadership. Now, many of us have mistaken the idea that it's the pastor's job to bring in sheep. But you know that shepherd, the shepherd does not beget sheep. The shepherd does not have sheep. Only sheep can beget sheep. Only sheep can bring in sheep. It is actually the responsibility of church members to bring in the sheep. It is, as a matter of fact, now pause here and say this. The truth is, is that the sheep should bring in the sheep already saved. In other words, you've led them to Christ already and so forth. And then it is the pastor's job to feed, that is teach the sheep and help cultivate their spiritual growth and mature development. Now, however, not having a pastor, as I said before, in going over this, is no reason for not bringing in new sheep. That is, if the word is still going forth in strength and clarity, by the church leaders and elders. And I think that we can say that that has certainly been true and by and through our guest ministers and teachers. But look at this, the last paragraph on page two. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the chief shepherd, made provision for us in the event that we became absent a shepherd. As you know, at this time, Jesus himself was getting ready to depart from the earth. And not unlike many of us today, the disciples were beginning to worry about what would happen to them in the absence of their shepherd, their teacher, and their guide, just as some would say here today. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and you can turn to the next page and you'll be right there, Jesus told the disciples and really us what to expect. Look at John, chapter 14. Verse 16, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I will pray the Father, and he will send you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. 
The next verse, 17. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The next verse, 14. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And we can actually say that he did, in fact, come to us in the form of the Holy Spirit. So we are not alone. So church, we're not, orf we're not orphans. We have the Holy Spirit in us and can carry on in the physical absence of Jesus and in the physical absence of a local, local shepherd or pastor. As Jesus said himself in Luke chapter 10, verse 37, he says, go and do. Just get busy. We need to get going and doing. We need to shift our focus away from anticipating the arrival of a new pastor to the purpose of the ministry, which is to seek and save the lost. Now, we're to those who feel that we need a church building to carry out uh, this mission of seeking uh, to save the lost. And I want you to just visualize this. If some of you have probably been to this church. How many of you have been to uh, Hillsong? Some of you have. Hillsong holds his services just a few blocks away in Times Square, off of Times Square, uh, in a theater called the PlayStation Theater. And that's where they've been meeting for some time. And Hillsong has thousands, actually really tens of thousands of members. And they have no intention of investing millions of dollars in building a physical plant. They do all of their services there. They do a full range of church services there for their members. And they meet at another location in lower Manhattan at Union Square. And that's the Irving Plaza Theater off Union Square. So they don't feel that it's absolutely essential to have a building to seek and save the lost. And they have brought them in by the thousands. There's a large church in the south in Alabama, which has over 12,000 members. And it, it, from its very beginning, has only met in theaters like AMC, where we met, movie theaters. That's where they meet. And they also have no intention or plans to invest millions of dollars in a physical plant because they feel that this money really uh, uh, diverts them from their essential purpose, which is to grow the body of Christ by seeking to save the lost. The use of rented facilities, if you're not aware of this, is one of the current trends in ministry. And I'm not saying that we're going to always do this. I'm just pointing out what the trends are. And it's actually a recognition of the condition of the early church and going back to the early church. Now, we know that there were synagogues in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and, and, and of course, in the New Testament as well, because where did Jesus go to teach when he arrived in a, in a particular town? He went to the synagogues. But do you know that there are no Christian church buildings in the Bible? There are no Christian church buildings in the Bible. The church building as a place to meet was invented in and around 200 to 300 AD. The church was actually in decline then, and they began to build buildings. And to turn the page four, you'll see that it was basically in the third century when Christianity came under the authority of Rome, when the Emperor Constantine issued a decree adopting Christianity as the official religion of Rome that the concept of the cathedral became the church building. And Christians continue to struggle today, spending millions on large physical structures and cathedrals because they feel that that's absolutely essential. Now, remember, 
because people have asked me when, when I was talking one-on-one -on -one with people, well, we have indications in the Bible where Paul wrote to this church and that church and so forth and so on. And look at, uh, at the second paragraph where I point out that when Paul refers to the church at Corinth, Thessalonica, or Ephesus, or some other location, he and the other apostle and disciples were actually referring to the community of believers that live in these communities. These believers met in homes, and they met outside in the open. They were not writing, meaning Paul and others were not writing to a church that had a building address like 477th Avenue, New York, the address of our office building. Christians have all gotten away from the truth stated in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. You can turn to that. You can look at it, actually. It's right there. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples, that synagogues, churches, made with hands. In Acts 17, 22. Uh, 27, I'm sorry, Acts 17, 27, which says, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. And 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. We don't have to go anywhere. We don't have to go anywhere. As I say and have said from time to time, for those who come to... Uh, church on Sunday, whether it's in a hotel or in a church building, looking for God, the only way God is there is if he came in with you, if you brought him there, and so forth. He's not hovering around in the, in the building. I love the statement of a very prominent uh, uh, leader who was telling a story of having rented a hotel, and, uh, and he looked out, and the people out there were just straining and looking upwards and upwards, and they were straining, trying to reach God. And he told them, folks, if God was on the second floor, we would have rented the space up there. <laughs> so you don't have to strain and reach, and the, God is nowhere to reach for. So, okay. Uh, so we have forgotten also that the church is not a building, and that we, the people, we, the body of believers, are the church. So let's look at a few relevant scriptures, and they're right in front of you there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, which reads, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We are the temple, the building of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in us. The next, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 it's right there. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Holy Spirit is in us. And Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It refers to the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this ministry, among the Gentiles, that's us, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So now you see that God is in us, the Holy Spirit is in us, and Christ is in us. So it's not some physical structure, but it's we, the believers, who are the temple, the building, where the God, where the full Godhead dwells. It's in us. 
the Trinity dwells in us. And I mean, if we really, really <laughs> accepted that, I mean, we'd be up shouting right now. I mean, that, that, what it means is that you have all power. You have everything that you need. That's what it means by he that's within you is greater than he that's in the world. How could anything be greater in the world than the full Godhead? Impossible. Impossible. So, it's we are the temple. And we saw this clearly in those three scriptures I just read. And let's just round it out by looking at 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, which reads, and that's at the bottom of the page, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Word being Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one, as we always tell you. What this means is that wherever any part of the Trinity is, the whole Trinity is there. And that is within each of us. Now, when we Christians meet together, no matter where that meeting takes place, whether it's in an office, a hotel such as this, or out in the park, we can be sure that God is with us. Look at what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. It's right there. He says, for where, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So if two or three of us get together in his name, he's in the midst of us. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, and you're familiar with this, where we are told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But it doesn't say where this assembling should take place. It doesn't say that it has to be in a church building or a particular location. It could be anywhere. So we may indeed acquire a church building in the future, if that makes sense. But our focus should not be on the building or lack of a building. Our focus should be on the purpose of the ministry, which is to seek and save the lost. Now, we have no excuse for holding back in pursuing uh, our church purpose of seeking to save the lost. So I re repeat the question I asked earlier in number one. Are we carrying out this purpose of the ministry? And again, look around you. Do we see new people here today? When's the last time you led someone to Christ? Or the first time? When's the last time you brought someone to Thursday night Bible study? Is the church growing? I think we can honestly say that too many of us are not carrying out the purpose of the ministry. Now, it doesn't mean that you're doing something bad or that you should be punished or... Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to get on your case. We're just pointing out that just based on what we see in the physical or through the physical eye, we're not growing. Because can you imagine if each one of you invited one person to church today, we would have to double the number of seats. <laughs> Simple as that. Each one bring one. So forth. So. Each one drag one in. And some of you have done that, by the way. I mean, you literally have not dragged them in, but you've really invited people off the street. And, and some of those people have become members of the, of, of the church. So, so look at the next to the last paragraph, because this is personal. And here I ask, is everyone in your household saved? If the answer is no, you have purpose work to do. Are all of your friends and coworkers saved? If the answer is no, you have work to do. The same for neighbors. And this is important, the next statement. If you don't feel, and this is true for a lot of people because we don't feel that they will listen to us or whatever. If you don't feel that you are the one to lead these individuals to Christ, 
then you can certainly do this. You can pray to the Father that he send another laborer to these individuals that they might listen to and be saved, so forth. And that is right in the Bible, by the way, so forth. But before you undertake any effort to lead someone else to Christ, you might need to answer the second question, which is how do we carry out this second part of the purpose of seeking to save the lost? Obviously, it's the last statement on the bottom of page five. We must be ourselves saved according to the measures listed in Romans 10, 9 and 10. And there at the top of page six, and of course you know these, most of you know these by heart. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Romans 10, 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You've got to open your mouth. Now, after Romans 10, 9, 10, we experience, and you've heard us talk about this, meaning any of us who have talked before you here, that after salvation, we experience the new birth of our recreated spirit. That's our spirit man within. And we are therefore new creations in Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which reads, therefore, it's right there in front of you, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. It follows, follows here in this written script. Now, then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. As I pointed out last time, God is pleading through, pleading through us. Why? Because he has no other voice, no other feet, no other hands in this earth realm but us. And Apostle Price likes to answer the question, likes to ask this question. If God is depending on us, is God in trouble? I want to make it personal. If God or if you are all that God has, is God in trouble? Can God depend on us to do our part? Now, as born-again Christians, we are all ambassadors for Christ, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 tells us. And the dictionary definition of ambassador is this, and most of you know this because you're somewhat familiar with the diplomatic function of an ambassador. The, the, the definition is an ambassador is an accredited diplomat, an official envoy sent by a country as the official representative to a foreign country. In terms of accepted use today, an ambassador can also be a representative or promoter of a specified activity, a champion, supporter, backer, or booster of a product or an idea, and so forth. And you know that a lot of products have their ambassadors, their spokespersons, and so forth, and so on. And uh, the UN has certain ambassadors. There are certain ambassadors who are ambassadors for peace, UNESCO has certain ambassadors and so forth. So as Christian ambassadors, the question arises is what country do we represent? What product are we promoting? Like the Apostle Paul, we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God and we are an official envoy or link between the unsaved of this world, in this world, and God's kingdom. Now, if you haven't seen this before, I have it written right down there. It's Philippians 3.20. 
our, our new citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 tells us this, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians 1.13, uh, which Elder Mary read part of it this morning in doing communion, he, has, he being God, has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us or conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. So we're citizens of the kingdom. We're citizens of, of, of heaven. But as I state at the bottom of the page, go to the bottom of the page six, as a matter of reality, we believers hold dual citizenship. Like some people can be a citizen of Israel and a citizen of the United States. We hold dual citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. And as born again Christians, we are ambassadors. And you can turn the page. And official envoys of that kingdom commission. In other words, we are also, did I point that out? We, we're also citizens of earth. That's a dual citizenship. And as born again Christians, we are ambassadors and official envoys of the kingdom commission to bring lost souls on earth into the kingdom with us. And what is the product we're promoting as ambassadors? It is reconciliation. That is reconciliation back to God. That's what salvation does. It reconciles us back to God. Turn again to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, where we find this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. It's right there in front of you. We find this. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a couple of minutes. Now, what I want you to do is review with me the foundation scriptures we have cited in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is such a powerful set of scriptures. And when I get to the last one, you're going to see how powerful it is. So let's review 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 17 through, 17 through 21 and see how this clearly sets forth and summarizes who we are and what our purpose is as believers. First verse, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, and we stated it before, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I go on to point out that we believers who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior are now new creations in Christ and poised for a newness of life. Now, I want to point out, and it's not written there, and you can make note of that either on paper or in your mind. When we talk about a new creation, and I've stated this before, we're not talking about the fact that you have gone through a makeover, you know, like you see on the television shows where someone comes in looking frumpy and uh, matronly, and then they send it to the back and they redo her hair and makeup and put on an up-to-date outfit. That's a makeover. That's not what we're talking about here. This is not a makeover. It's not a renovation like you renovate your bathroom at home or your kitchen. We're talking about something that's much more powerful than that. We're talking about the fact that you are now a new entity altogether. One writer says we are a new species a new classification of entities, something 
super powerful, not just something that's been made over or renovated. Very important to know that. The next verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, it reads, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our ministry. That's our ministry. We're all ambassadors of Christ, and this is our ministry. This is our product. We who believe have been reconciled to God, who in turn has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Next verse, verse 19. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So what I'm saying this means is, and it's stated right here, in spite of ourselves as sinners, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and has entrusted to us the, world, the word of reconciliation. Now, the ministry of the word of reconciliation, the word of salvation, is our assignment and is the purpose or assignment of Crenshaw Christian Center in New York, where we believers fellowship and serve as members. The word or ministry of reconciliation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And verse 20, which follows at the bottom of the page. Now, then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we represent Christ as his ambassadors on earth in carrying out the assignment or purpose of the ministry, which is to help reconcile the lost to God. As stated previously, God is pleading through us because he has no other voice than our voice. And we get to the final verse, which is 21 in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I write, because of Christ Jesus, God, God now sees us through the lens of righteousness and sees himself in us just as he sees his son. Now, this is such a powerful, powerful scripture. And if you really understand, and we're going to see if we can make sure you understand its import this morning. What it's saying is that when we become the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus, God no longer sees us as a sinner destined to death. He actually sees himself. In other words, it's like God looking in a mirror when he looks at us now, after we become the righteousness of him through Christ Jesus, he sees himself as he sees Jesus. And he also sees us as inheritors of eternal life, not someone doomed to go to death. Now, it's so awesome, this statement, that it bears more explanation than what I stated above, that God sees us through the lens of righteousness. It's important for us to know that being the righteousness of God is an actual expression of our, of our, let me make that clear. Being the righteousness of God is an actual expression of our salvation through Christ Jesus. And we need to have an understanding of this if, so we can explain it to anyone that we might be attempting to lead to Christ as ambassadors of the ministry of reconciliation. Now, you may not have heard this, I don't know, but uh, this scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, is usually described 
as a perfect, as a perfect expression of a math, mathematical formula of salvation, the perfect expression of a mathematical formula of salvation. And I see we're going to need to do some editing. I'm just reading ahead here. I wrote this, by the way, but I, I didn't state it correctly. Because I, I have down here, on the one side of the equation, we find righteous Jesus, and on the opposite, on the opposite side, we find sinful humanity. That's not really the equation. I stated that wrong. So take out your pen. We're going to edit that right now. Because I don't want you handing it to somebody and who really understands this and say, wait a minute, this is not right. Because I don't want you to think that there's an equation where righteous Jesus is on one side and sinful man, us, is on the other side. That's not what. It, so what I want you to say is that on one hand, scratch outside of the equation altogether. On one hand, we find righteous Jesus. And on the other hand, forget about the opposite side, we see sinful humanity. Do you have that? Do you follow what I said? On the one hand, we have, not on the one side, but on the one hand, we have righteous Jesus. On the other hand, we have sinful humanity. Now, because of Jesus' death on the cross, the sin, and this is what's so awesome, you, you, you've heard this before, but this verse really tells us because of Jesus' death on the cross, the sin is transferred from the human side to Jesus' side, while the righteousness is transferred from the Jesus' side to the human side. And this is what communion is all about that we participated in this morning. This is change which took place because of Jesus' death on Calvary. It's also described as a doctrine of imputed righteousness. Now, the meaning of impute is to ascribe, to assign, or attribute some characteristic, especially a fault or misconduct from one person to another. With the transfer of our sin to Jesus at Calvary, the righteousness of Jesus is being imputed or attributed to mankind. The righteousness of Jesus is being imputed to us. In other words, we're getting credit for his righteousness and we have become that. That's how we become the righteousness of God. Now, it's important to understand something about this because people misunderstand this. They think that since we're the righteousness of God, that means we're perfect. And that in our human behavior, we're going to be perfect in our conduct. That we're not going to do anything wrong. We're not going to say anything wrong. And so on. And we're not going to mistreat people. And we're not going to talk about people. And we're not going to do a lot of these things. Well, we know in point of fact that this is not true. So being righteous or being the righteousness of God does not mean that we're perfect in our human conduct. So keep that in mind. What it means is that it changes the way, as I said before, the way God sees us. He no longer sees us as a sinful soul headed to certain death, but he sees us as he sees himself, and he sees us as an inheritor of eternal life. That's what's so important. So let me summarize all of those scriptures in one paragraph. At the bottom of the page, I'm summarizing verses 17 through 21 from 2 Corinthians 5. And I summarize it this way. After receiving salvation ourselves, we become the righteousness of God in Christ, and we join, and we join God's reconciled community. This salvation is what makes us a new creation in Christ, which inspires and impels us to be ambassadors of Christ or ambassadors for Christ who carry the word of reconciliation to the unsaved in our community and ultimately to the world. Now, Ian, do you have your slide? Is it up there already? 
Yeah, can you see Ian's slide? What I did is I drew it out and put it in. Ian didn't know I was going to do this. So I said, let me make sure you have this in front of you. So I, I drew it out on page nine as well. Can you see what, can you follow Ian's up there? You can also follow it on page nine. And that's the mathematical equation of salvation. The first part is showing after Jesus goes to Calvary, there's a transfer of the sin of humanity onto Jesus. You know, he takes on, that's what it means by he bore our sins. And then from righteous Jesus, you see the transfer of his righteousness to sin, sinful humanity. That's us and so forth. And Ian did a great job. But I said to Ian, he didn't know I did. I said, they need to have a copy of this in front of them. So you can take this home and study it, show it to other people, so forth and so on. Now, as a result of Jesus' death on the cross, as I said, the sin is transferred from the human side to Jesus' side, while the righteousness is transferred from the Jesus' side to the human side. That's salvation. We are the righteousness of God. The equation is below. That's A plus B equals C. A plus B equals C. And we didn't put anything written up there, but you can see what I wrote here. A is your part, B is God's part, and what it equals to when you combine those through, it is eternal life. Your part in A is to repent and accept Jesus as Lord, as we pointed out, as Lord and Savior, based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. And it's important to know that repentance is not a one-time action. It's a deliberate and continual lifestyle motivated by faith and love and obedience to God's word. Philippians 2.12, it's right there, it reminds us that repentance is an ongoing work by telling us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What it's saying is that this is a daily thing. In other words, you don't, you don't do good for one day and that's the end of it. It's something that you have to do daily. The B part is God's part. Don't have to elaborate on that because we've talked about it already. God's part is already done. God's part is already done. And remember, if God ever has a part, what do we know for certain? It's already done because there's no time in God. There's only the now time in God and so forth so on. So that's what's important. Uh, so this enables... Jesus going to Calvary is what enables that transfer and it enables God to look at us and see himself and see us as inheritors of eternal life. A cannot go to C without B. You have to have two. They must be combined together to arrive at C, which is eternal life, which is what we all desire. Now, if you had your Bible open, you would see that 2 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 1 follows, but I have it at the top of page 10. And it describes some of the characteristics of the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 says this, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So we're reminded in this verse of two things. First, we are not in the work of the ministry of reconciliation alone as God is working also, working workers together with him. Secondly, we're not working for him. We're working together with him. It's a joint enterprise. God works and we work. So God is always doing his part. 
we have to ask, are we doing our part? Second verse, for he says, in an, acceptable, in, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And this is God speaking. And by the way, this is taken from Isaiah 49, 8, which I point out there. In an, acceptable, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And then he goes on to say, because this is still part of the scripture. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And what it's, what it's telling us is that our work is to be done today, now. Now is the time for us to carry out our purpose, which is the ministry of reconciliation, seeking to save the lost, and so forth. And drop down to verse 4 in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulation, in needs, and in distresses. And here it's reminding us that our ministry work will require a great deal of patience, and we may have to endure challenges and some dis and discomfort, as the Apostle Paul did. But we do this knowing that we are working with him and that he is with us in building up the body of Christ. The last two scriptures, that's six and seven that I cite here, have to do with some of the traits we should have and exhibit in our work, in the ministry of reconciliation and seeking to save the lost. Six says, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, that's patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Verse seven says, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left hand. That's complete righteousness. So at the top of page 11, it simply says that we're reminded of the traits and tools we should possess and exhibit in our ministry and that we're reminded of the great support we have emanating from, number one, the Holy Spirit. Number two, the word of truth, which is the word, the Bible, the power of God, and the full armor of righteousness. Now, to get a more complete picture of the characteristics of our ministry of reconciliation, you should read all of chapter 2, uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. I obviously don't have it all listed here. You can do that on your, on your, on your own. As we serve, we must be sure we understand what reconciliation means. So I went to Vine's Greek New Testament dictionary, and I record this for you. We find three verbs from which we get reconcile and rec reconciliation and one noun. The verbs are kataloso, apokataloso, and uh, dia, dia, dialoso, dialoso or dialoso. As a noun, the Greek word is catalogue, catalogue. And you can look these up in vines yourself. All four are very similar in meaning and are used in different scriptures. When you really study the word closely, in some scriptures, and I, don't, I didn't do this here because it would, it would take forever, uh, it's using different, uh, different verbs. For example, apokataloso, that's a stronger version of reconciliation, for example. But anyway, taken directly from vines, reconcile, reconciliation from kataloso, Properly notes to change, exchange, especially for money, hence a person's, to change from enmity to friendship, to reconcile. With regard to the relationship between God and man, the use of this and connected words shows that primarily reconciliation is what God accomplishes, exercising his grace towards sinful man on the ground of the death of Christ in propitiatory, propitiatory sacrifice, uh, under the judgment of death which we were under 
due to sin, as seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, where both the verb and noun are used. And I just restate this so you can see what I mean by that. In other words, in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, where it states this, that is that God was in Christ reconciling, that's the verb, kataloso, the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's the noun. So you have it for anybody who wants to be scholarly and go check out Vine, you can, you can have a field day there. And you'll find all kinds of scriptures where these different verbs are used. In the case of man, the part of the def definition from Vines that applies uh, to us is to change from enmity to friendship. The enmity between man and God coming from Adam's original sin in the garden, which caused separation from God, as you know, we see this recorded in Isaiah 59, uh, verses 1 and 2, which says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, that's the sin, have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Now, while enmity and separation was called entirely by man, this is the important thing. That's the first Adam. God took the initiative to reconcile man back to himself with his plan for salvation through Jesus, the second Adam. Reconciliation is possible, and that's what we celebrate today in communion. Jesus, Jesus is offered as a propitiation uh, uh, for our sins. That's the top of page 12. Now, the word propitiation describes a sacrifice that is designed to appease sins. And we've already seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, that this reconciliation comes through Jesus Christ. It's important to note, and that's the last statement in that paragraph, that God is not being reconciled to man. God had no fault. Man was at fault. Man is being reconciled to God. It's important to know that it's going that way. Now, our purpose, ministry purpose day at CC New York, we're now in that section. Because people are still lost today, the ministry and word of reconciliation described by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.18, which we have and we've read, is a purpose we believers are called upon to carry out in this world today. We are today's ambassadors for Christ with the stated purpose of seeking to save the lost through the divine ministry of reconciliation that God has given us. That is your purpose as a Christian believer, and that is the purpose of the ministry of Crenshaw Christian Center in New York. Our focus should be on this ministry purpose and not on the size or location of where we meet. It should not be on whether we have a local pastor or not. And most certainly, it should not be a focused obsession on a particular building. Our ministry of reconciliation comes directly from God through Christ Jesus, and it's not dependent on a particular pastor or having a particular building. And as we all know, those of us who've been here since 2001, that pastors come and go, or have come and go, and so do buildings. So as we go forward, we know that the imperative, urgent purpose that needs to be carried out is to seek and save the lost. So in pursuing this ministry purpose, and I'm in the next to the last paragraph at the bottom of page, uh, the bottom of the page, we need to remember that once we have citizenship through Jesus Christ through our salvation. We now have, I mean, I mean, rather, once we have the relationship, I'm sorry, with Jesus Christ through our salvation, we now have that citizenship in heaven that we talked about. And as previously stated, we also are citizens on earth where we are the ambassadors of Christ here. 
Therefore, since we are the ambassadors of Christ, the interest of Jesus becomes our interest. Last paragraph, his passions become our passions. And the mission and purpose become our mission and purpose. And remember Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which tells us, for the Son of Man, Jesus is telling us himself, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's our mission, and we carry out the purpose of that ministry as ambassadors of Christ. And to be affected, there's some things that ambassador needs to have and know. And on 13, I list the beginning of several. One, and I make sure you have these in your hand, so, so you can review them, study them, and make sure that you are in compliance. The ambassador must have knowledge. That is why we have new members classes and discipleship training classes to give you a firm foundation on which to grow your faith. As, as an ambassador, you must be knowledgeable about the process of salvation that you yourself experience, pursuant to Romans 10, 9, and 10. You must be able to explain this to someone you're leading to Christ. Your personal story, your personal challenges, your personal victories are invaluable here. And Elder Iva Johnson, this is a plug for her class that is to come again, in, uh, perhaps in September, teaches an excellent class on how to lead others to salvation. And this class will equip you with the basic knowledge and information you need to lead someone to Christ. But you also must be diligent in studying your word. And 2 Timothy chapter 2.15 tells us to be diligent to present ourselves approved as work, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You need to study the word and be familiar with the word yourself. And you need not be and must not be ashamed of the truth that you have embraced through your salvation. Paul tells us in Romans 1.16, this is Paul writing, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Greek meaning Gentiles, and that's us. Number two, the ambassador must walk and act in love. Uh, and I give you a scripture there, and, and Elder Ivor spends a lot of time on this, the importance of love. She thinks that it's absolutely a foundation uh, in terms of anyone attempting to lead someone else to Christ. The third one, the ambassador must, must have and use wisdom. And the knowledge of them, of, uh, that an ambassador must have has to be used in a skillful way. So you need, as Proverbs talks about 4-7, Proverbs 4-7, and I'm moving on because I want to finish this today. It, it talks about wisdom being the principal thing, but in all you're getting, get understanding. Understanding, last paragraph on the page, is a bridge between knowledge and wisdom. Understanding enables us to make a proper use of the knowledge, and the proper use, and the proper use of that knowledge constitutes wisdom. And I want you to listen to th this last couple of statements I'm making there. Understanding gives us or gives you judgment on the best way to act on the knowledge you have. This is what's important. Understanding is a difference between having a loose familiarity with something, like simply knowing and being able to recite Romans 10, 9, and 10. I know people who can recite that backwards and forward. It's a difference between having this loose familiarity and knowing it intimately. Knowing what to say and what to do is good, but turn to the next page, but knowing why and how it should be said and done is much better. And again, you get some of this training in Elder Iva's class. And the last one, for the ambassador must have, it must have character that projects integrity and virtue. 
because an ambassador brings himself along in everything he does, his personal ministry or personal maturity and individual virtue can either make or break a message. In other words, if you are that person that the person you're talking to sees hanging out at the bar on Saturday night and drinking and carousing, and then you're going to try to lead, it's not going to work. It's not, I, I shouldn't say that. It, it, it's a challenge for it to work. It doesn't mean it won't work, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge. <laughs> you must be positive and honest and so forth. And see what Proverbs 13, 17 tells us. Uh, and you, you have it right there. It says, a wicked, a wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings health. Health is healing, and health is life. And here's some other attributes you'll see there. You can read those on your own. Now, in this ministry of reconciliation, we're at, uh, on page 15, I'm watching my time. In the ministry of reconciliation that seeks to save the lost, we all know, and this is important to know, because we know this, I don't have to tell you this, that the harvest in the New York area in the tri-state area, meaning New Jersey and Connecticut and so forth, is huge. There are tens if not hundreds of thousands of lost souls to reach. And I'm reminded of the compassion that Jesus exhibited when he saw the great multitudes who were in need of saving. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 and 38. It says, when Jesus saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And what I want to point out in the next paragraph is that we, in this ministry, are part of the modern-day labor force needed for the harvest. As we carry out our assignment as ambassadors for Christ, I know that we are not the large numbers that we used to be. CCC New York is splintered into several smaller ministries here in the city. It would certainly be a more powerful effort on behalf of the body of Christ if we were all joined together in outreach, in outreach efforts. A number of us in the church just returned from the recent meeting of the Fellowship, the Inter Fellowship of International Word of Faith Ministries in Washington, D.C., where the theme was unity and being one, acting as one. I would love to see the four different smaller churches that have come out of Crenshaw Christian Center in this area uh, join together in this vital mission to seek and save the lost. I would love to see this. But unfortunately, based on what I've seen, any prospect of such unity does not seem uh, promising. And why do I say this? Because instead of focusing on the huge harvest field of hundreds of thousands that are all around us, I see some in these spin-off churches of CCC New York focusing more energies on plowing the already harvested field within the Crenshaw Christian Center New York family itself. If you don't know what I'm talking about here, it's those calls that you get from other members telling you, when are you going to come to our church? That's what I'm talking about. See, actually, hardly a week goes by, and this is true for the past year up to now, when I don't hear either directly or indirectly from some former member or about some former member of the church calling another present or former member saying, when are you going to join our church? In some cases, the calls have been relentless. Now, let's look at 16. Let me be clear. I am not condemning, condemning this activity. We are all free entities. And I am certainly not trying to block anyone from leaving this ministry. I don't want you to think that. We're all members of the body of Christ and belong to God. 
As such, we're all free agents, free agents and free to worship wherever we please. We know that's true. But what I do want you to understand, I really want you to understand this next point, is as you witness this frantic activity of already saved members calling other members, trying to get them to go from here to there, that you're not doing anything to grow the body of Christ. You're not seeking to save the lost. What's happening is that there's a seeking to grab and unroot the already saved. You're not seeking to save the lost, you're seeking to grab and move away the already saved. You are not uniting the body of Christ as you subtract, as you take away, subtract, save members from one location and move them to another location. That's not growing the body of Christ. And this is the statement that I came up with myself, but it's so obvious, and that is that the body of Christ does not grow by division and subtraction. It grows by addition and multiplication. And true addition and multiplication takes place only when you seek and save the lost, not when you recruit and badger the already saved, so forth. Now, we need to do what Apostle Paul uh, said in terms of growing a church. And I give you these scriptures right here, and I'm going to end uh, very soon, folks, with this, but I want you to have the whole thing. Uh, uh, this, is, this is his direction on how a church grows. He said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. In other words, somebody has to plant, somebody has to water and nurture, and then God gives the increase, and so forth. Uh, and just look at uh, 9, the last one, because I want you to see the last statement there. He says, you are God's building. It's just a reinforcement of something I've already said. So let me say this. When you recruit an already saved person from another church, you are not planting. You are plucking and uprooting. That's what you're doing. In an uprooting, there's nothing to water and nothing on which God can give an increase. Pastors and church members should exercise care before they set out to uproot a member from another church. Remember 1 Corinthians 12? Verses 18, and it's right there in front of you. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body as he pleased. Christians today do tend to be highly migratory, like birds uh, in flight, going from church to hurt church to hear this word or that word. But you should be led by the Holy Spirit before making any change in your spiritual home. And this is true for everybody, so forth. Now, just as a point of history, and I want to get this uh, in today. Apostle Price planted Crenshaw Christian Center in New York following a vision he had received from God to plant a church here during the early days of the New York Crusades to which many of you went. Apostle Price planted and watered and subsequent local pastors watered and gave CCC and God gave CCC New York the increase. Turn to the last page. Apostle Price has fulfilled his vision to plant a word of faith based church in New York City. Since that planting, a number of other word-based churches have been established in the area, and you're familiar with a number of these. And the several churches that have evolved out of CCC New York have continued to be word-based ministries, which is terrific. And no matter how these CCC splinter churches grow and no matter what they achieve, they will always owe their very foundation to, to, the, to the original planning by Apostle Price. And because... 
and this is what I want you to, 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 to understand, because we are all offspring of CCC and all members of the body of Christ with the ultimate purpose of seeking to save the lost, we could never wish our brothers and sisters who are now elsewhere anything but God's best. And that should be our MO. Now, furthermore, CCC in New York, founded by Apostle Price, has served since 2001. It's what I call an incubator church, where people have come and they moved on into other areas and, of course, has spun off to several churches. But most of these saved CCC ministry people would say that it was Apostle Price who drew them to the church in the first instance, and that is certainly true. In any event, Christian seeds planted by Apostle Price will continue to grow and live on in perpetuity in this city. At the same time, we will continue to pursue our purpose at Crenshaw Christian Center New York as ambassadors for Christ in the Ministry of Reconciliation. In the process, we will be certain that we are indeed seeking to save the lost and not seeking to uproot the already saved. In this work, we are reminded that when we are pursuing a godly purpose such as seeking to save the lost, we are co-workers with him and have the Word and the Holy Spirit as our guide. Psalm 17, Psalm 119, verse 105 says that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. That's our guide. The Holy Spirit is with us as our guide. Last paragraph in this ministry of outreach. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 reminds us that we are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells with and is always with us. And Romans 8, 28 reminds us that all things work together for good. For those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. The purpose that we are called to here at CCC New York is seeking to save the lost through our ministry of reconciliation. As we proceed, we are inspired and propelled by Jesus to whom we give the last word today. This is from Luke 10, 37. Go and do. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 945 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Or join us for Bible study on Thursday evenings at our fellowship office, 470 7th Avenue on the 6th floor, right in Herald Square. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.